Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. On this week's programme, we're heading to Portugal and to Germany to toast two founders who are blazing a trail in luxury family tourism and in viniculture, respectively. Taking the best of a traditional approach to each and adding an innovative and refreshing twist to reimagine two different industries. In Lisbon, we meet a visionary who recognised untapped potential in Portugal's property market and has emerged as a leading figure in the industry with a brand that's setting new standards in luxury family holidays. It boils down to the people and how welcoming, open, tolerant, liberal they are. And I think this is one of the special things about Portugal. Then we're in Berlin to clink glasses with a founder serving up a whole new category of drinks. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. First up, we head to Lisbon to meet a household name in Portugal's hospitality and real estate space. Chitristan has been working and investing in the country for more than two decades. Along with her husband, Roman, Chitra created the Martinal brand from scratch. Today, it encompasses four different hotels and resorts, two in the Algarve and two in Lisbon, all focused on easy family luxury. Chitra and Roman are also behind an international school in Lisbon, serving the growing number of foreign families choosing to settle in the city. Monocle's local correspondent there, Gaia Lutz, spoke to Chitra from her newest endeavour, Martinal Residences, a five-star branded residence project that opened earlier this month in Lisbon's Parque das Nações. Chitra began by telling Gaia what makes Portugal such a great place, not only to live in and to visit, but also to do business in. What is good about Portugal is, you know, you have a high level of well-educated developers here, engineering students from all these great universities, but also the tech visa enables us to bring in developers from Brazil and other countries. And therefore, it's a good place. It's a great place to live for people. And I think that is one of the attractive points to then develop businesses um, here. From my personal point of view, as an entrepreneur who's lived here, for, for many years. Um, you know, I'm British and Swiss and of Indian origin, Sing- born in Singapore, and we came here in 2001. And I was able to always see things with different eyes, not, not to spoil your surprise, but you know, <laughs> it boils down to the people and how welcoming, open, tolerant, liberal they are. And I think this is one of the special things about Portugal. We are not robots, we're human beings, and we want to feel welcome in a place and we want to feel good. And This is one of the special points about Portugal that makes it great for entrepreneurs to come here and start their business. And it's so well connected to the West, further West and towards the East. So long answer, but... I was going to ask you, you mentioned a lot about vision. And I think the place we're in now in matching our residences, which is the area of Nações Expo, was all about that in 98. It was projecting uh, Portugal of the future, attracting people from outside. We were just looking at the view. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to invest in this area in particular? Because I think a lot of our listeners, they might have come to Lisbon and never have been here. So what is this area and, and why why here? So this is a very interesting area of Lisbon. And honestly, I mean, we've lived in different parts of Portugal. We lived for 15 years in the Algarve in two different locations. And for seven years, we were living in the Cascais area in Estoril. And when we looked at investments opportunities, we made one investment in Cascais, which was a hotel coming out of a bank. It was a, an acquisition we made uh, from the books of a bank, a hotel. 
We made uh, another acquisition in the center of town in Chiado Bairro Alto. And this piece of land we bought was also from a bank in practice in Sorge. And we, as foreigners, having lived in Portugal for all these years, saw this area with, with different eyes, perhaps. But it's such a great area to live in. It's a fantastic district. I mean, not just for families, but, you know, also for families. It's a great mixed-use development that came out of an urban regeneration, a strategic urban regeneration project that the Portuguese government engaged in well before the expo. So the whole thing must have started in the early 90s and enabled them to get things organized for the Expo World Expo 1998, bringing in European Union funds as well and building the Vasco da Gama Bridge connecting Lisbon to Montijo, a 17-kilometer bridge as well. And it has such futuristic things like, you know, a central vacuum for rubbish and, you know, uh, heating and cooling of buildings using hot and cold water, the differences in temperature. But it also has what many urban planners talk about these days, 15-minute cities. It is a 15-minute city because The way it's been designed, it's got pedestrianized zones, it's got semi-pedestrianized zones, it's got roads at different levels connecting the north and south of Parc des Nassoyens. It has a, a transport hub that has a bus station, train station, and underground. It's got residential hotels, Lisbon Casino, the largest conference center, which is Feira Internacional de Lisboa. It has a concert venue. It has clinics, retail, the largest shopping mall with cinemas and everything, hairdressers. It's got a lot of ground floor retail and food and beverage outlets. So giving different products for different people, um, you know. So uh, th this vision that they had, you know, of course, strategic development projects take years to deliver. And the first part of the delivery was obviously for the Expo 1998 and then the second part of the construction and delivery of all these different projects where you had huge international architects uh, as well as local architects involved in creation of these different buildings here. And I, I think it has the largest collection of street art, you know, art installations and street art in Lisbon. So bringing all this together, of course, takes years to deliver. And, you know, we were all faced by the global financial crisis in 2010. So things stopped a little bit and then started up again after. But we were given this opportunity to develop in this iconic part of Lisbon, new Lisbon, and we've developed two iconic buildings, you know, landmark buildings on this site. And if we can go inside inside the building, because yeah. and also the architecture, because I think so much of what you touched on about what makes Expo special from the street art to the to the architecture, the, the amazing architectures that are built around here. It just has that space and that vision for you to add something to it. It's not uh, stuffy or, or conservative. And obviously this played when you were doing the design of Machinal Residences. Design is a big part. We just had a tour. Can you tell me a little bit about how you put that concept into place? So we have had, uh, we've been connecting obviously to architects and designers over uh, our years here, but also to Portuguese artists because we've run every year in Martinel Sagres, which was our first uh, resort that we built from scratch, a luxury art and design weekend. And we did that every year and we always, you know, we invited different artisans and brands to participate, but every year there was an artist in residence. So we got to 
meet some of the um, very interesting and exciting emerging artists. And we believe in art. It's such an important part of culture. It's creativity, expression, comments on on the zeitgeist, etc. You know, and having met the most interesting artists over the years, we were able to actually then conceive, okay, what are we going to do in this building that connects us to this world of art and pay respect, let's say respect this location. We invited some of these artists to do specific pieces for us. And, um, you know, the are 40 pieces done by five different artists and they're replicated on every floor in the corridors and in the hotel rooms and actually also part of an art package that an owner of a house can purchase from us. We are giving the opportunity for the public as well to appreciate these pieces of art and it connects what practice Nassange is into the building, I believe. And we're very, very happy to have delivered this not just amazing design by Eduardo Capinha Lopes, architect Eduardo Capinha Lopes, where he's designed this amazing building with green facade, with olive trees in the facade and, you know, planters, and a very special building and how we've designed all the spaces and chosen amazing materials. But we've also got art. So I think art and design are, are pretty important elements of our building here Anyone can build a building, but, you know, what people feel inside is a whole other story. And we've also designed, involved uh, architect Eduardo Capinha Lopes and Dora Romano, interior designer, and Epoca, furniture manufacturers from the north of Portugal, to design furniture packs. And these have been designed with heart and soul. And people can also buy a furniture pack designed specifically for their apartment, where the price includes, you know, we will... <laughs> unpack, install, and clean up afterwards. So it's really hassle-free ownership. Can you tell me a little bit about going to the core of the brand, the concept of family luxury? Because as we walked through, you, you, you told me about so many amenities and small details that cater to the segment that is often, as you were saying, perhaps underlooked, at least in Portugal. I know you're a pioneer of this sector. Can you tell me what sort of things are very particular about you know, catering to this family segment? Sure. So if you go to our city center apartments that I spoke about in Chiado, Barrio Alto Chiado area, great location if you want to stay in the middle of historic old town, Lisbon. And as a family, just because we start having children doesn't mean that we don't want to see and be part of all this excitement. And we have enabled these families to travel to the center of Lisbon, stay in the center of Lisbon. And the details we have there are inside the apartment we have as a standard for a family that is going to stay in the apartment little step stools for kids to enable them to step up and brush their teeth. We have cots, obviously, for babies. We have baby chairs so that the dining tables, because they're all apartments, the dining tables have a baby chair. We have a baby concierge service so that you don't have to lug all your stuff. We ask you, what would you like in your apartment? bottle heaters. Um, and in fact, our front office is called a family concierge team. They look after not just these details, but also for the grandparents. You know, um, a family is, is a wider, can be great grandparents. What details would you like to see for your the older generation as well? And then we have a kids club in the Chiado property, which is open till late. Can I ask you, because Lisbon's going through through this, let's say, boom for a very long time. And I suspect you saw a whole sort of circularity of it in the Algarve already. And now Lisbon, is that's happening. And obviously that brings a lot of 
changes. Uh, sometimes I wouldn't say backlash, but you know, there, there are changes to the visa schemes. There are changes, uncertainty perhaps of how, how it's going to be in the next five years. Has that impacted the way you think about the future or, or your strategy for this residence at all? So um, the interesting thing is that as entrepreneurs, we have to be ready to constantly pivot. In our 22 years here, I mean, there was no smooth ride for anything. You know, we had to face changes in, in the law. And obviously that impacts, you know, businesses if, if the VAT rate changes or, you know. So there are some smaller challenges you always have to deal with as an entrepreneur. But the one of the biggest challenges we had to deal with was the global financial crisis and Portugal going into bailout. And I can tell you, it was, there were very tough times. And uh, I guess that was the first major school. <laughs> there were other schools and, you know, the first 10 years of our, our lives here were, were difficult building up a business from scratch. But the global financial crisis really brought things to a halt. Portugal went into bailout from 2011 to 2014. And we had to react. We had to we had to hold on to our business. Um, you know, we are one of the few developers who actually managed to hold on to our property at that time. I remember very tough times. But, you know, you have to have true grit, resilience. You have to be smart enough to pivot slightly to, okay, grab this other kind of business that's coming in or readapt certain parts of your business to make sure that you survive. I mean, cash is king for an entrepreneur. If you don't have the cash coming in, you know, it's a problem no matter how good the idea is. So I feel that is the first thing to say. You need to be flexible. You need to pivot. You need to constantly keep your eye on the cash, okay, as an entrepreneur. Now, things were going well. There was growth and great. Uh, we had more and more foreigners being aware of what was going on in Portugal. And we had a big influx of tourism, which represents a big chunk of our economy. But then guess what happened? I mean, I know in 2019, I remember when we started the off-plan sales of our branded residences, I always told my team, the next recession can always be around the corner. Was I prepared for a global pandemic? No, no. But the principle was still the same. You have to constantly be prepared as an entrepreneur and focus, do it earlier rather than later. You know, I know some people think, ah, you, you sell too cheap or whatever. No, <laughs> you actually get enough cash on your bank account that enables you to survive, right? So there's two ways of looking at it. We, in our case, we'd actually made enough sales to enable us to feel right. Okay, we've made these 50 sales before the pandemic started. And guess what? I could focus my team's attention then between the first lockdown in March 2020 and March 2021, that one year, we sold a further 30 apartments. So yes, I know now the golden visa is ending. And sure, that is going to impact what kind of projects we do in the next years. But that doesn't mean we sort of put our hands up in the air and say, oh, goodbye, I'm not going to do anything more. As I said, there's always opportunities and you always have to find a different solution probably. So Pivoting, looking at uh, the opportunity, how to keep you know your business going. Th these are what entrepreneurs have to do all the time. And for looking at the future, what are the plans for the Matching Out brand in the future? Is there something you could already say is in the pipeline? Are you looking outside Lisbon now, even further north perhaps, or outside Portugal? So many people have said to me, when are you going to bring Martignal to the rest of Europe? Or when are you going to bring Martignal to America? And there is a demand for our brand in these other places. And you know, locally, we would like to do a project in Porto, for sure, because, you know, a lot of long haul, a lot of travelers from America or India or Brazil want to do the whole of Portugal in 
one week and it'd be great for us to do Porto, Lisbon, Algarve. And Porto is an amazing city. I've always loved it. We've been looking for a project there since 07, believe it or not. But, you know, we've been busy with other opportunities. And uh, I believe one more project in the Algarve would be good. But outside of Portugal, we'd really like to expand the Martignal brand in city centers like London, Madrid, and um, New York one day, who knows, but certainly within Europe first. And I think that this is the big differentiator that we have is the city stays for families. And I think as entrepreneurs, when we look at the next 10 years, there's definitely, I, I feel, an opportunity to bring this abroad, but it has to be done in a slightly different model, whether it's franchise licensing. Um, we certainly need to work with a private equity partner or a family office partner to bring this abroad. So far, we've focused our equity here in Portugal. Now to to do a big growth outside of Portugal, we need partners, the right partners to do this. So that's what's going through our heads and not retiring yet. <laughs> yes, but not yet, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we need, and, and that will require a lot of work to do. So I can't just announce, oh, we're going to be opening this and that. Uh, but we're definitely looking hard at how do we bring the Martignal brand to the next level and outside the country. That was Chicha Stern, the owner and founding member of Martignal, in conversation with Monocle's Lisbon correspondent, Guy Lutz. To find out more about the new property, head to martinalresidences.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. At Monocle, we're rather partial to a glass or ten of crisp Riesling, maybe a playful Chablis, a jovial Gavi de Gavi, you get the picture. But now, the low-alcohol wine is on the rise. One Berlin-based entrepreneur is making a bid to fill the gap in the market for high-quality, great-tasting low-alcohol vino with his 6% product, the Gentle Wine. On a warm spring evening, our Paige Reynolds went along to meet the ambitious founder and, of course, to get a taste of what's on offer. 25% of our customers, they really digged into it and wanted alcohol-free. And the other said, we want to drink less, but the alcohol-free ones are not exciting enough. They, they lack flavor, they, they lack richness. And I think most of the people also, they like a little bit of alcohol because life is fast and sometimes it feels good to have this little downer in the evening. So the same way as having the upper of the coffee in the morning, right? Yeah, so yeah. a lot of these products, however, I think need explanation. If you take this one here, it's a sparkling tea. Okay. So it's, it's like a kombucha, but somewhat more sophisticated. Moritz Zurovitz yeah, is darting across the wooden floors of his co-working space in the trendy South Berlin district of Neukölln. He's excitedly flicking through brochures and pulling bottles out of boxes to give me an idea of the variety of products on offer in the no and low alcohol market. The space we meet in, Frifel, operates as an office, storage facility and occasional tastings venue for interested customers. Before entering the low alcohol space with his novel 6% product, The Gentle Wine, Moritz was making no alcohol products with another venture he co-founded, Colonne Null. So where did his interest in no and low alcohol all begin? My initial urge was that I love wine and beer too much. And I also I didn't have a doctor telling me to drink less, but I told myself to reduce alcohol consumption a little. And then I was trying alcohol-free wine choices and I was disappointed because most of the products seemed to be of very low quality or very sugary. And um, I then felt like 
why is there nothing in particular that is exciting? Like there's now in Germany, at least a, a big variety of alcohol-free beers. There's probably 500 breweries that have interesting products. Some breweries I think are successful. They have a beer that is alcohol-free, but tastes interesting, not necessarily exactly like their original. And other companies, they try to be as close to their original beer as they can. And when you look to alcohol-free wine, it's completely different than the normal wine. And so we talk to winemakers, ask them, how is that? We ask people who do premium de-alcoholization factories where you bring wine in an unromantic way of 25,000 liters in a huge lorry. Then the wine gets heated to 30 degrees in a vacuum and the alcohol kind of evaporates. And then you have what's left is a nice smelling liquor that is then sold to the port wine industry. And the water that is left is the alcohol-free wine. And then we wanted to figure out whether it makes a difference if you use cheap wines or expensive wines. How do wines change through dealkalization? Are there different dealkalization methods? There's, for example, also a reverse osmosis system where you slowly get the alcohol out of the, of the wine. And we just wanted to understand things. And, and we ended up creating a company of almost 15 people that has been in the beginning only selling wine, alcohol-free wine to Germany then also to other countries. We always had feedback from our German and other international customers that I would argue 30% really love the product. But also a lot of people said like, oh, we bought now for 60 euros alcohol-free wine. But guys, this is not wine. This is not what we wanted. We wanted wine. Feeling dissatisfied with no alcohol ventures, Moritz got the itch to find a middle ground. Like all the best things in life, the move to low-alcohol wine was somewhat of a happy accident. We once had a production where we produced 100 bottles and they had 1% alcohol and they never entered the market. But we, we had the product and we felt, oh, it, it, it's still alcohol-free-ish, but it's, you see how much quality is already in this 1% of more liquor that you put into it. So why not make something out of it? And then we, we just decided to produce 2,000 bottles of the low alcohol option and then went out partially to the same stores but also did a little bit of online marketing and realized that there's a group of people who are really into that and if you look at beer for example the german market for alcohol-free beer is like five six percent the market for alcohol low products is 20 percent the beer market has always been a little more inventive and less traditional whereas the wine market i think is very traditional in the sense you have the heritage of 300 years and your grandfather made it this way and your father made it this way and you're now you're coming and you want to suck the alcohol out of the wine you're not allowed to do this so i think the innovation dilemma is way bigger for a normal winemaker than for a beer maker clearly there were going to be some challenges so how did moritz and his team go about onboarding the winemakers they work with today we we approached probably in the, in the first three months 30 40 winemakers and a lot of them said no. And then there was, I don't know, three, four guys who said like, okay, it's an interesting product. Myself, I just took over from my parents and I don't drink every day anymore. And I'm now a winemaker. My wife is pregnant and we are looking for alternatives. Although we love the product we produce, but why not have 10% of the market doing something differently? So, and then we, we produced the first few wines. Some of the winemakers were also kind of well-known or they were part of bigger association. 
And the people realized that our aim was not just to buy something and produce it and market it very quickly, having a low quality, but maybe selling it with a fancy brand, but that we really wanted to understand the wine and value the traditional product that we have. So how has the market grown in the last few years? If when we started five years ago in the alcohol-free sector, there was maybe 30 competitors, and now there's 300. Internationally, it's growing as well. And in the low market, there's currently six, seven products probably that are doing that. And there's a South African product with 5.5 from Spier. There's Sarah Jessica Parker from Sex in the City just developed a product called Sevenly in Australia and New Zealand. I think there's some kind of a joint venture. There's a French startup called Moderato with 5%. So slowly there's something happening. But I think nobody completely understands it yet. And if you look at, let's say, alternative meats, where there was hundreds of millions being put into R&D, and um, if you look at alcohol-free beer, there's been 40 years of, of challenges, of competition, of uh, beer makers trying things out. And at Wine, we are the process that maybe started five years ago with way less money, although the technology is pretty old. Like There's been companies that have been doing the alcoholization 100 years ago. Funnily, in times of prohibition, they exported a lot to the US, but then it just became not exciting anymore. Finally, with my interest peaked, it was time to get down to tasting it. So, what's this first one? Um, we have a, a white wine. It officially, you're not allowed to call it wine because it's a wine product. There's certain legal regulations of when a wine is a wine, and it's usually, I think, above 8.5%. And because we do something with a product, as we said, I blend alcohol-free one with the original. I am not allowed to call that wine. It's um, made in the Rheinhessen area. It's close to Frankfurt and Mainz. Also, our wines, they kind of try to reflect a certain taste of a grape. Let's say in this case, it's more Sauvignon-like. But the best low-alcohol Sauvignon Blancs are not pure Sauvignon Blancs by the grape, but a, a smart mixed of Sauvignon Blanc with a few other grapes in order to create a taste that is similar. And this is because certain grapes through the alcoholization lose uh, certain identities they have or um, properties they have when they are a normal wine. And so you kind of try to reconstruct the taste and that sometimes works well if you maybe add some Riesling or even a Verdejo from Spain. Um, but we always work with one winemaker going into his cellar trying to produce what you have now in your glass. Okay, wow. I'm really excited. Oh, that's nice. Does it taste like wine? It does taste like wine, yeah. It's it's 90% close and you feel that it's somewhat lighter. Mm. But if you had it in a comparison with five normal wines, mm. you would get it that it somehow there's something different. But it's a super easy going drinking, sitting out at four o'clock in the sun on a Friday afternoon. It's not, it's not got that sweetness, I think, yeah. that you find in so many other 0%. We have a sparkling. Okay. Again, we're not to call it like normal Zekt or Champagne, because it is normal wine that gets the, the sparkling through CO2 that we mm -hmm. add. This, in this case, is um, made with a winemaker called Vasem. There are like three brothers. They took over the wine place from their parents and um, they're, I would argue, ambitious winemakers that are always ready to try new things. We did alcohol-free wine with them as well. Oh, I really like that. Obviously, if you could drink half a liter, it would be as much as a beer. 
So yeah. that's quite enjoying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely. Like, the idea was not to make people drink more, but again, uh, we we're not against the one glass per day rule. <laughs> For Monocle in Berlin, I'm Paige Reynolds. That was Moritz Zirowitz, founder of The Gentle Wine, in conversation with Paige Reynolds. And you can find out more by heading to thegentlewine.com. That's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka coming your way every Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to Monocle magazine for more about better businesses every month. You can also follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. And you can contact the team. Send an email to Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye. And thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.